If you have your Bibles this morning, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We are in the book of James, James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. And why don't don't you find that, and once you do, put a tab there and also look for the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. James 5 and Acts chapter 8. And while you're looking for those, we have been walking our way through the book written by James who is the half-brother of Jesus, the Lord of the universe. I like to point this out as often as I can just to say, like, how do you convince your half-brother that you're the son of God? You resurrect back from the dead. That's how you do it. And then he says, oh, that's who you are. And so it just, to me, one of those proofs that Jesus is who he says he is is that even his half-brother James and his half-brother Jude, they give their life, they die on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what we learned last week from the book of James, he gave us a very challenging message on how do we use our wealth and using our wealth as a means of indicating, a litmus test, if you will, as to whether or not we are a kingdom-minded Christian or we have in mind the things of this world, my own wants, my own dreams, my own desires, my own luxuries. The whole universe surrounded is all about me and you're living in my world. Where are we on that spectrum? And depending on how we uh, evaluate our finances, you can pull out your checkbook and use that as a litmus test to discern whether or not you are kingdom-minded or have in mind the things of this world. And this week, we are going to be looking at the topic of human suffering. And it might seem like a little bit of a shift But what James wants us to see here is how we use our wealth and how we approach the topic of suffering helps us determine whether or not we have in mind the things of glory, the things of eternity, or if we are much more fixated in the things of this world. And so, once again, this morning, we have an opportunity to do a little bit of a metric, a little bit of a litmus test to see where our heart is. So like I said to you last week, we get to put our binocular Bibles away to put those aside and we get to take out our mirror Bibles and to evaluate our own lives and say, God, where am I at with respect to this topic? What do you have to say to me this morning? James wants us to evaluate our own lives. Now remember, James, he is writing to the persecuted church. They were in Jerusalem, they were in their holy huddles, even though Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that there would come a time when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would leave Jerusalem and they would go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we pick up on Acts chapter 8 and they're still in the same place. They haven't moved. They haven't gone out to share the good news of the gospel. But here's what I want you to see this morning on the topic of suffering Even though they didn't have the perspective to see it at the time, God was using their suffering to bring about his kingdom purposes. So if your Bibles are open, turn there with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. The context, of course, Stephen, he has just been martyred for the Christian faith. People are fleeing for their lives. 
chapter 1, or verse 1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout, what Jesus said, throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul, that is the Apostle Paul, he eventually becomes a follower of Jesus and authors half of the New Testament, but right now he's a persecutor of the church. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them in prison. That's the context of the book of James. They are suffering on account of their faith. They've lost their homes, their family, their friends, their communities, their workplaces, everything they've ever known they have lost. And it is a whole lot of bad news. Then we get to verse 4, and it always strikes me. It always hits me. It says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Circle, highlight, Underline What God or what humanity intended for evil, God intended for good. Though they didn't have the perspective to see it at the time, this was the very mechanism by which God people went to the four corners of the world to share the good news of Jesus. And then turn with me to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and we pick up on this again. It says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only to Jews. That's bad news to most of us here this morning. Now some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed, and they turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he arrived and saw the grace of God that had been done, he was glad and encouraged them all the more to remain true to the Lord with their whole hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus and took for Saul, who is now converted to the Christian faith. He's about to change his name to Paul. And met with Saul and met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians for the very first time in Antioch. What humanity intended for evil, God intended for for good. That's what we need to see here, though they didn't have the perspective to see it at the time. God uses the brokenness and the suffering that they endured in order to bring about his kingdom purposes. You see, according to the gospel, there's a sense in which good things can be bad for you, and very bad things can be good for you. One of those counterintuitive claims of the gospel Because we don't have the perspective to see in this moment, at this time, how this suffering could in any way, shape, or form be good. How could it be good? But we don't have the perspective to see. And now we, 2,000 years later, we have the context of 2,000 years 
to see how the gospel began to spread out to the four corners of the world so that inhabitants of Abbotsford, British Columbia could also know the good news of God's grace. And so what James is saying here this morning is I want to show you how to be patient, not for the illustrious career. I want to show you how to be patient, not for financial security. I want to show you how to be patient, not for the sake of your retirement. I want to show you how to be patient for God's kingdom to come so that you can have the perspective of seeing God's glory and his goodness in the midst of what's broken in the midst of of all of the, the evil and the corruption and the suffering that we face in this world, that God is still at work. You might not be able to see it, but he's still at work. And so think of, it, think of it this way. Last week on the topic of wealth, we, ha- we had an opportunity to kind of see a window in, into a perspective of someone who had uh, only worldly, earthly desires in mind. And this week we have the opportunity to see what it looks like to have a kingdom perspective. That's the comparison and contrast that James is giving us this week. So with that, look at James. James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. This is God's word. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about in him. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. What does it mean to have patience? Is patience like when you're at a red light and someone's in front of you and they're checking their Facebook when they should be looking up and then the light turns green and you refrain from putting on the horn for like the extra two seconds that that person has inconvenienced you? Is that patience? Is patience like uh, when you go to Starbucks and you ask for a dark roast coffee, black, and it takes the barista like 10 minutes to order it and you don't complain, you're showing patience? You see, I I feel like oftentimes when we think of patience today, we think in very trivial terms. We say, oh, I'm I'm just going to be patient in, in this area. But it pales in comparison to the example that James wants us to see here. There there are very, very different definitions. So right on the front end here this morning, I want to give you a biblical definition of patience. Here's how I put it in your note sheet. Patience is this, long-suffering guided by Christian hope. Long-suffering guided by Christian hope. 
James is telling them, look, we need to have this anticipation, this longing, this excitement for God's kingdom to come here on this earth. You see, the pattern of our prayer life ought to be, come Lord Jesus, come soon, because the whole of creation is groaning since the fall of humanity, since Genesis 3, we have been groaning for Jesus to return. And so that's the pattern of our hearts and our lives. We have this longing for God's kingdom to come in this world. And the reason why it's so hard for us to have this perspective is because of two things in our life. The first one is time. We want things now, don't we? We don't want things later. We want things right now. I I looked at this this past week. Um, How many of you, just this week, you were on the internet and you were waiting for a page to refresh or you tried to download something and it took five seconds and you bailed? Anyone? I, like, this happens all the time, right? Statistics indicate that if you have to wait more than eight seconds for something to download, you will click exit. We can't wait more than 10 seconds. Like, oh, it's taken forever. I'm not gonna wait here nine whole seconds for this to download. You bail. And so that's one of the, the issues that we have in our heart of hearts is we have this time issue. We want it now. And then the second issue is suffering. No one here wants to endure suffering. Do we? Is there a person here this morning who says, that's what I want, I just, I just want more suffering. And the thing that makes it so difficult for us is the two things that tend to define us as a culture in North America are a me-centered approach to life, I know what I want and I want it now, and the pursuit of my own pleasure. So both of them run in the face of what James is talking about here. So on the one side, we say, I know what I want, I want it now, I want to go in this direction, my dreams, my hopes, my pleasures, right? That's, that's the worldly perspective. And then James says, we need to have the perspective to see that there's going to be suffering and it's going to be long. And that's really hard. That is an incredibly difficult challenge for anyone. And James wants us to have the perspective to see that we are called to endure for the sake of what is yet to come. And what is that? The coming of Jesus. When he will make all things new. When he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Where there will be no more dying no more death and destruction. All of that will pass away and we will be made new once again. That's what we're longing for. That's our prayer as Christians. So that's the long-suffering component, but but what is hope? So you see, truth be told, um, hope is one of those things that we also have kind of silly terms for. This is how we tend to use hope today. We might say something like, I hope I get that job, right? I I hope my son gets onto the varsity program. I hope my daughter gets into the university of her choosing. I hope the Vancouver Canucks make it to the finals and lose to the Bruins in game seven. That's already happened. See, we we think of hope as as wishful thinking, right? I hope I get ice cream cake for my birthday. Write that down, Julie. You know, wishful thinking. I I just, I hope this will happen. But, But that's not the biblical definition of hope. Here's how I put it in your note sheet. Hope is knowing the final score. 
Knowing the final score, are there any baseball fans here this morning? Admitted baseball fans, very few of you. We are clearly in hockey culture. I see a couple in the back very excited about baseball. Now, admittedly, I, I kind of view baseball as, you know, the, the sport where you can get in nine good naps, right? But I can clearly remember November the 2nd, 2016, watching the Cleveland Indians play against the Chicago Cubs. Now, perhaps some of you remember that game. The epic Game 7 matchup for all the marbles. And I was watching this game. It was the eighth inning, and the Cubs, even though they've had 108 years of championship drought, they are up 6-3 to three with two innings to go. And then my wife, she gets this really good idea. She says, Justin, neither of us like baseball. I'm not watching this. And we start watching the Country Music Awards. I have no interest in country music, but we're watching this. And I say, Julie, we got to go back and watch this epic Game 7 matchup. We have a discussion for a couple of minutes. And for those of you who watch this game, you know what happens. After like three minutes, we go back to this game, and it's tied up 6-6. to People are going crazy. The Indian mascot is dancing around. There's people hugging each other in the stands. Cub fans, their hands are in their face and they're crying and maybe the curse of the billy goat still stands. They're going crazy. And then it's followed by a no-run ninth inning and then a rain delay where people are on pins and needles waiting and then finally, in epic fashion, the Cubs win in overtime to win the epic World Series. Now, what does this have to do with hope? Here's what I want you to see. Hope is like a Cubs fan watching that game on a rerun. You see, those moments, like when the Cubs were down 3-1 to one in the series and their backs were against the wall, fans love that moment because they get to watch three straight games where in epic fashion they come back and they win the World Series. In fact, they love that moment when they're up 6-3 to three, or when, and then it gets tied up 6-6 six to six, and all of their fellow fans are literally crying. They're sobbing. And Indian fans, they're hooting and hollering and celebrating. And the Indian's mascot is dancing around. They love that moment because they say, you don't even know what's coming. It makes all the difference in the world when you already know the final score. You see, in in those really difficult moments when their backs are up against the wall, you're not sweating it. You're not worried about it. You're just enjoying the ride. Because you know the way that this game ends, it ends seven to six, and my team brings home the trophy. And in the same way, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we already know the final score. You see, for centuries, there's a book of the Bible that that people are absolutely fascinated with, and that's the book of Revelation, right? The the beast and the thousand witnesses and and the lamps and and the many heads and all these different images and metaphors, and it's very, very confusing. And admittedly, as your pastor, there's still elements of the book of Revelation that, that I don't really understand, but I've read to the end of the book. And do you know what it says? God wins. And because we know the final score, it gives us a proper perspective in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution. And see, the concept that we need to see when it it comes to hope, when it comes to patience, 
We need to have this perspective that says, I am willing to endure long suffering on account of the gospel because I know the final score, that God ultimately wins. And then James, he gives us an example of someone who endures hardship, someone who understands long-suffering and patience because they live in it every day. And he gives us the example of a farmer. A farmer. Let's look at James chapter 5, starting at verse 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He says, be patient. How can we be patient? Look at the example of a farmer. Now here's what I put in your note sheet. The first thing that we can learn from farmers is that farmers work hard. They work hard, do they not? I love how James, he wants to us to have this perspective on, on patience and human suffering, and he goes to farmers. They work hard. Now, we know as Christians, living in the Christian life doesn't simply mean, you know, buying the best lazy boy money can buy, getting a margarita, putting an umbrella in it, sipping on a pina colada, and just waiting until the second coming of Jesus. No, he says, look at the example of farmers. They have the hope of their calling. They know what is yet to come, and yet they're still working hard. See, most of you, you know that I'm a city boy. Um, I I grew up in Section 8 housing in the inner city my entire life, and so I'm I'm a bit of a city slicker. And and Julie, she's a real farmer, a a true farmer, and she likes it when I mention that, that she's, she's a real farmer. And then we came to a place called Abbotsford, the city in the country, and we knew we were home. (laughs) That's what sold it for us. And so I I distinctly remember when my son Liam was uh, just two years old, he's he's almost six now, but when he was two, we got a tractor magazine from his grandpa, and we're sitting down, we're looking at this tractor magazine, we're going through it, and I go, Liam, look, a tractor, and my two-year-old says, no, Dad, that's a combine. And I knew all hope was lost for me. So I'm not really a, much of a farmer, but my wife is a farmer, so there's, there's hope for my children. But I distinctly remember when I was 14 years old, I went to my friend Eric's house, and he was a dairy farmer. And we played video games all night till midnight, and then we fell asleep for like two seconds until at 4 a.m. he kicks me and he says, Justin, wake up, it's time to milk cows. And I knew I was dreaming because it's 4 a.m. and he said, milk cows. And so I just tried to fall asleep again. And he, sure enough, he kicks me again and he says, Justin, we gotta go milk the cows. So I'm walking around like a zombie trying to find my way to my clothes and out the door and I'm half asleep until we open the door and we find the Canadian tundra and I'm wide awake. My hands are freezing, my toes are freezing, we're milking the cows and by we I mean Eric is milking the cows. and. I say, Eric, you do this every Saturday? He says, dude, I do this every day. And that was the last day I slept at Eric's house. (laughs) But you know, like, I'm not going there. I love you as a friend and stuff, but I'm not going back to that place. (laughs) Farmers work hard, right? 
And that's the example that James wants us to see here as well. I love that he goes there. He says, when, when we're thinking about obedience, about walking with God, uh, the calling that we have to care for the marginalized and the poor, watching our anger, caring for others, how we use our wealth, he says, I want you to have a proper perspective that means we need to have patience in the midst of our suffering. And the example, the best example that I can give you is that of a farmer. Up before dawn, down after dusk, oftentimes trying to cultivate a crop that they cannot see. And that's the second point that I want you to look at in your sermon guide. Farmers trust God. They trust God. Look again at verse 8. It says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Stand firm. What does that actually mean? You know, it's such a powerful and difficult word to translate. And so look at the example just one more time, the example of a farmer. A farmer recognizes perhaps more than anyone else by way of their profession, it's both their their blessing and calling, but, but also the curse of the profession, is they realize that they have to work and strive and toil and pull and push and do all of these things in order to do the very best job that they can But at exactly the same time, they know that there's certain elements that are out of their control. Will I get the early and the late rains? Will there be be drought? Will there be enough sun? All of these elements that are outside the realm of their control. So they put their trust in the heavens. And they say, I can't do this on my own. I think, for example, of what the Apostle Paul talks about when he's talking about evangelism. He said, I planted the seed, Apollo swatted, but God gives the growth. And in the same way, in a very practical sense for farmers, they know I can, I can do the very best job that I can, but I can't cause something to grow. And so I'll work hard, I'll do the best that I can, but at the end of the day, I have to put my trust in the heavens. I have to put my trust in God's. And, and James wants us to have that same perspective in our own lives as well. Then we get to verse 9. And verse 9 says this. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Seems like a, a bit of a shift, doesn't it? Put your, put your trust in God the same way a farmer does, but also don't grumble against your neighbor. How, how do those two come together? Why does James put them back to back? Well, what we need to see here is that James has been repeatedly reminding us that for the Christian who has in mind the hope of glory, who has a proper perspective on the prodigal grace that they have received by God, the costliness of God's mercy that gives them a greater capacity to be merciful to their neighbor. And so that is why it makes perfect sense to bring that here. He says, here's what we need to see as a way of a litmus test. How do you know that you're not walking in the joy that God has given you? Well, here's how you do that. You're focused and fixated on the weaknesses of other people. You spend no time looking at the plank in your own eye and all your days looking at the speck in someone else's. You're fixated on other people's weaknesses and you can do no harm. Respectfully, the issue as a result of our sin nature is you just think you're so awesome 
And we're so lucky to have you in our lives to remind us of how terrible we are and how great you are. That's the sin nature. That's what we're fighting with each and every day. And so we just keep grumbling and grumbling and grumbling and we're not spending a whole lot of time looking in the mirror. Here's what C.S. Lewis says on this subject. He says this, those who don't think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about others. That's the challenge that we have. And James' argument is, hey, bro, the judge is standing at the door. I'd watch my mouth. I'd be careful before I grumble about others because that might be an indication that you have yet to receive the grace that God has so lavishly given to you. And then he gives us the second example, an example that we can learn from prophets. And here's what I put in your note sheet. Prophets experience joy in suffering on account of the gospel. They experience joy in their suffering on account of the gospel. Look again at verse 10 if your Bibles are still open here. Verse 10 says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You see, at least for the example of the farmer, he gave us a few descriptions. But for the prophet, he says, Take, for example, the prophets. And there's nothing else really there, but we have to remind ourselves that James is writing to Jewish Christians who know their Old Testament very well. They live in an oral tradition where they're constantly learning about the prophets and the kings of old and and the works of God in the midst of their covenant community. And so a lot of these anecdotes and stories would instantly come to mind in, in ways that they might not come to mind for us this morning. So here's what likely came to mind for them. Even though the prophets were persecuted, even though many of them died on account of their faith, James says, think to their example. Think of how they conducted themselves. Think about how they lived their lives. It was grueling, it was hard, it was painful, but they persevered in their faith. They had this inexpressible joy in the midst of their suffering. And how did they have that? They had the hope of their calling in Jesus. They knew the final score. So let me just give you one example of this. Uh, If your Bibles are open, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter one, starting at verse 21. So here's the Apostle Paul wrestling with uh, the things of this life and the things of glory and having the perspective of a prophet when he says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between these two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better But it's also more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for the progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. 
Do you see the perspective that he has? He has this eternal perspective. He says, the best thing in the world for, would be simply for me to die and to be in glory with God, to sit around his banquet feast, to enjoy the, this place where there's no more suffering, no more death, every tear will be wiped away. But I also know there is work left to be done here on this earth. I need to have this perspective to see that I'm bringing about God's kingdom on account of God's Holy Spirit inside of me. I am doing God's kingdom work here and now. And so it is profitable for me to stay. And James says that's the perspective that we ought to have as Christians, a longing to be in glory, but also a perspective to say, I will choose to suffer here because God's work is still being done. And then finally, we get to a third example, and this is the example of Job. Look again at verse 11. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about in his life. You see, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So one more time, I want you to turn with me all the way into the Old Testament to the book of Job. Turn with me there to Job chapter 1. And while you're looking for that, we'll set the stage. Chapter 1, verse 13. And Satan, he's walking around on God's earth, and he finally enters into God's gates, and, and God is there with his angelic hosts. And God says to Satan, what have you been up to? Satan says, I've been looking at all of the sons and daughters of Adam. <laughs> And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright in every way. And Satan says, yeah, that makes sense. You've given him everything. He has nothing to complain about. Nothing to suffer about. Seven children, a loving wife, all the money that the amenities of this world can give him, servants, tents, livestock, cattle. He has everything. But I've spent enough of my life looking at these, these sons and daughters of Adam, and here's what happens. The moment affliction comes upon their life, they will curse you to your face. And God says, not Job. Satan says, well, let me bring about calamity upon his life. And God says, okay, just don't touch his life. And here's what happens. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. That's bad news. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels, made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck down the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 20, at this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. 
And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Could you imagine having that kind of perspective in the midst of that kind of suffering? And so once again, act two, if you will, God the Father and Satan begin having a conversation with each other. And once again, God says, have you considered my servant Job? He still hasn't uh, discredited me for my favor. He still hasn't cursed me. And Satan says, skin for skin. Sure, he's lost all of his things, but you still haven't given calamity upon his life personally. Let me go after his bones. And God says, okay, but spare his life. And then I want you to turn with me as we pick up here, chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among ashes. And his wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's the kind of person you want next to your side when things aren't going well. (laughs) There's a sense in which he's like, I lost my kids, I lost my livestock, I lost everything else. Couldn't you have just taken her too? And that's where they're at, right? He is in the midst of his suffering and his pain. And he has nowhere to turn. But in the midst of that, he remains faithful and true to the word of God. I came in with nothing. I'm going to go out with nothing. Fair game. Now, truth be told, the way that this story ends, there's, there's 30 chapters in which his so-called friends come up to him and they tell him that there's probably some secret sin in your life that you're unaware of, that you need to repent of. And it gets to a point where even though James has been faithful and he has not cursed God, he will curse the day of his birth. He will say, I wish I was never born. I curse my mother's womb. I wish I wasn't on this earth. I wish I could just die. And God meets him in his pain and in his suffering. And so James, he he gives the book of Job as a means of encouragement, a book of encouragement on Job. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but that's what James is doing here because we have the perspective to see how the story ends. Even though Job has lost everything, eventually God will restore everything to his life and it reveals to us that God is compassionate and full of mercy. Now I know people in this room have experienced suffering people in this room have experienced incredible loss but none of us have suffered the way Job has suffered that's why he's the example in this story no one has suffered like him that is until Jesus takes on the sin of the whole world and James says I want you to have the perspective to see in the midst of your suffering in the midst of your pain God is still at work We might not have the perspective to see it, but we need to have the hope of glory that is guiding us when we are in the thick of brokenness and calamity in this world. 
And so even though Job, he curses the day of his birth, God says, write this down, put it in the Bible. This makes good Bible because it's going to be a source of encouragement to the people that James will ultimately speak to in the first century. And in the same way, as James wrote this letter to the original church, it's a benefit for us too on this side of history. So here's a note that that I want you to see here a proper perspective, what we can learn from Job. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be discouraged. Just don't sin. It's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to be angry with God. It's okay to fight and to scream and to weep and to wail and to cry out, why? God's big enough for that. He can take that. Just don't sin in the midst of it. See, James, he's writing to a group of Christians that say, it seems like our enemies are getting away with murder. I became a follower of Jesus, and then I lost everything in Jerusalem, and then I fled for my life, and I went far, far away, and I was persecuted there too. God, why? I follow you, and my life just gets harder. Why? And God says, print it. Put it in the Bible. This is good Bible. It's going to be a means of encouragement to brothers and sisters in the Lord in Abbotsford, British Columbia in 2019. Print this. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be discouraged. But recognize that God is still at work. And may I remind you, God, he knows your suffering He knows your pain. It is the very reason why he came. And then we end with with verse 12. It ends in a rather odd way. After all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Why does he end this way? Here's the point I I want us to see here. This is the principle that I put in your note sheet. Don't lose your integrity and never lose hope. Be people of integrity. I know there are times in our own life when we just want to give up. We just want to throw in the towel. We keep asking why. Why would you allow suffering and calamity to fall upon my life when all I've ever tried to do is follow you and to remain obedient to you? Why would you allow death to occur? Dying? Suffering? Of the most despicable kind? Why, God? And we don't have the perspective yet to see that God is still at work in the background turning our broken things into beautiful things. Taking things that are broken and turning them into memorials of God's grace. That's what God does. 
in Linda's story, in my story, and in yours. God is still at work. He's not done with you yet. And if I can go from preaching to meddling for just a moment, which is always dangerous, my hope and my prayer is that we not only see this as an individual task, we we see it as a corporate task. Something that, that calls each and every one of us in this room and those who aren't here this morning as a community of faith to encourage and equip one another to be brothers and sisters in the Lord, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice when each other rejoices. In one week from now, we are going to be celebrating communion with one another. My hope and my prayer is that as we move forward, we can be the type of congregation that lays aside the burdens that we carry and that we give them to Jesus, but that we also give them to one another so that we have the opportunity to carry one another's burdens. That's the blessing of fellowship. That's why we are the church together. Because the promise of God is this, the hope that you have, it most likely will not pay off in this lifetime. That's why it's hope. But we have this picture of glory in which all things will be made new And we long for the day in which Jesus will come once again and he will take the broken things and they will become beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. But we also know, Lord, there are moments in our life that we encounter suffering of the most despicable kind the most cruel, the most inhumane, the most gratuitous. And it causes us to wonder why, how these things could happen. And we know that through your servant James, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It gives us the proper perspective to see that you are at work and that you will take the broken things and turn them into memorials of your grace. Lord, until the day in which your son returns and brings all things to himself, we ask that we would have the courage of our convictions, that we would stand firm in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.